If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We continue the series on the difference. Let's stand as we open God's Word together. This morning we're talking about scandalous tolerance. Scandalous tolerance. Now, we've, we've laid a lot of foundation in the first four chapters. Now, the Apostle Paul, as he's talking about the church and the fact that they should be living differently, he confronts them for not demonstrating a difference that they should have been in a lot of areas. And this is probably one of the toughest letters that Paul had to write and one of the toughest parts of the letters. And he begins in verse 1 of chapter 5 saying, It is widely reported. In other words, Paul knew it wasn't just hearsay at this point. Widely reported there's sexual immorality among you. And the kind of sexual immorality that is not even condoned among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife. It appears this is his stepmother in the, the story here. He says, And you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from among you. For though absent from the body, but present in spirit, I've already decided about him who has done this thing, as though I were present. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast that you may be a new batch, since you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast not with old yeast, or with yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Father, we thank you that the Apostle Paul was able to get real with this church that he had started. Lord, I pray that we would learn to be real with you and one another about sin in our life, in our family, in our church, that we would respond with the same truth and the same love that Jesus would respond to with. Lord, give us wisdom as we read this text. Help it bring the right biblical balance not only to our attitude, but to our actions. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Tim Elmore has written a lot about leadership in the next generation leading the next generation and and raising a generation that will be leaders. And he points out that uh, firms and companies that are desiring to hire millennials, those that are coming out of high school and college and uh, young adults that are ready to begin a career, often ask this question now. They've asked, and and he cited a, a few firms that ask if they knew what word it was that most described their generation among those who own the firms and those who manage uh, the, the resources and those who are in 
you know, with the HR people in the various corporations. Do you know that word that starts with an E that defines most of your generation? And, and typically the response is these words, he says. It's, it's words like, well, we're excited. We're energetic. Or we're an, an, an enthusiastic generation. Or we're, we're extreme. They love extreme sports. Extreme activities. But that's not the word that he, he's, he's pointing to. Anybody care to guess what that word is? Yeah, you got it right. It's the word entitled. So that's, that defines the, the next generation more than any other word. It's the word entitled. It's got certain in char- uh, characteristics that come with it that he points out. Most of these uh, come from uh, Tim Elmore's blog, but he said, uh, one characteristic is whatever they have coming to them, they want it now. They want it now. That sounds uh, like children in a lot of homes. Secondly, they don't want to work for it. Third, they want someone else to clean up after them. Fourth, if everyone has something, then they perceive that to be a need that they must have also. Next, there's supposed to be extra in enticement for my best effort. Someone has said there's never been a generation that has been so spoiled because of doing what should have been expected out of them anyway. We give them money if they score soccer goals or hit home runs. Um, We say, yes, we want you to go play, but if you'll do your best, we'll give you some extra enticements to get people to embrace a work ethic that they should have embraced for its value intrinsically. And so they want extra enticements for everything. Mulligans are considered deserved instead of grace. You hear the word mulligan, you probably think of your golf game. I certainly think of mine. I think that I deserve a lot of mulligans, but a lot of do-overs. But rather than seeing as grace, they almost demand it. Ask any high school or college professor. And finally, they believe that there should be no consequences for sinful actions. No consequences for sinful actions. Scandalous tolerance that takes place in our world today. There's a high level of tolerance that is sometimes a good thing. In Psalm chapter 19 and verse 11, the psalmist says, it is the glory of a man to, I'm sorry, it's the Proverbs, it says it's the glory of a man to overlook a matter. So there are trivial things when people offend us or when people do things that hurt our feelings, when they do something they didn't mean to do, that we might say, you know, that really is a minor thing and I need to have a, enough tolerance about me to say, I'm not going to make a big deal out of that. So a high level of tolerance can be good in many situations, but when behavior is detrimental to a person, a brother, a sister, a spouse, a child, when we think of a church member and a friend, and their behavior becomes detrimental to that person, to their spiritual, physical, emotional health, when it becomes detrimental to the family, when it becomes detrimental to the reputation of the community of faith, Even our gracious God has a point where he says, that's enough. 
And we have to deal with that. We have to be willing to confront that. And there is a pride and there is an arrogance in not only the rebel. See, the Apostle Paul's not just addressing the rebel here who's involved in this intolerable, scandalous behavior. He's addressing the church because they're not dealing with what's going on. They're not calling it what it is. And so he is, he's accusing them of the pride and of the arrogance. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 23, Saul, King Saul is about to lose his throne because of him having the pride, the arrogance to do what he chose to do rather than doing things that God had commanded. And in the midst of, of about to forfeit his throne, Samuel the prophet is warning, he says, in, in the words of the Lord, rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, but not only that, arrogance is as bad as worshiping idols. The rebellion to participate in that behavior was bad enough, Saul, but the pride, the arrogance that you think there are no consequences for those actions, that's as bad as idolatry. And so in these first three verses, he's addressing the whole church, and he's kind of calling the church out, and he says, look, I've gotten this report, there's this immoral relationship. As a matter of fact, this relationship between a son and his stepmother is so disgusting that even the Gentiles in a Greco-Roman world where almost any kind and every kind of sexual practice was tolerated, they said, even those lost Gentiles look at this and say, now that's disgusting. That's intolerable. That's scandalous. Obviously, it reflected bad on the church. And he says, though I'm not there in verse 3, I've decided about him who has done this. Paul had obviously spent some time listening, getting reports, verifying the truth of the matter, and saying, now we need to deal with it. We need to deal with this. Now, church, we need to make a big deal out of the love of Jesus Christ. We need to make a big deal out of grace, grace, grace. There's a thread of restoration and redemption all through Scripture that we need to embrace and share. We need to make a big deal out of forgiveness. Big deal out of forgiveness. God wants to draw us to himself, forgive us, set us free, justify us, make us as if we had never sinned. But at the same time, we need to remember Psalm 19 and verse 13 talks about being delivered from our hidden faults. Those things, sometimes it just, uh, sometimes just sin sneaks out. We didn't see it coming. The devil laid a trap for us, and man, boom, we just, we fall into sin. We battle with sin. We wrestle with sin. And those secret faults, those hidden faults that he's talking about in Psalm 13, that's not what Paul is saying they were tolerating here. See, the psalmist goes on to say in, in, in Psalm 19 and verse 13, he says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Presumptuous sin is not where, okay, I didn't expect to see that, I didn't expect that temptation, it, it caught me off guard, and I messed up, and I fell, and I'm sorry, and God forgive me, and God restore me. Presumptuous sin is where we know that it's sin, and we make a conscious decision ahead of time, and in our hearts we say, I don't care what God says about it. I don't care if it hurts my family. I don't care if it hurts my friends. And I don't care how it reflects on my church. I am making a, a, a presumptuous decision to live in this. 
And we need to be aware of how God responds to that and not only be aware of how God responds, we need to cooperate with God in that response. We need to cooperate with God's consequences for continual, willful, prideful rebellion. And so we need to ask the question, what are they? And so Paul is going to answer that question. He's going to say, here are the consequences. And he's going to call the church to be a part of cooperating and establishing those consequences. And the first consequence is the removal from the protection from chastening. There's a certain protection that the grace of God and the love of God, the forgiveness of God, protects us from the the just chastening of God in our lives. But there comes a time where God says, I'm lowering the hedge, and there's going to be consequences. So in verse 4, we begin this discussion of, of church discipline. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, basically, on the authority of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, Jesus has already taught us something. He's already explained something to us that we need to take heed to here. And you say, well, where did he do that? Well, if you look in Matthew chapter 18 and verses 15 through 17, you see that Jesus himself had established a a process for when a brother was overtaken in a sin. And he says, when that happens, you need to go as an individual to that brother. Now, if it's, let's say it's a female, perhaps it's another lady that needs to go, or if it's a male, it's another man that needs to go. So a brother or sister, you who know about the sin, you who have a relationship, you have, who have some kind of connection with them, you who are related to them because it's a family member, you go to them first. And you point out what's going on in their life and how it is intolerable for a Christian. And then if they choose not to repent, you find a brother or sister in Christ. He says, then you go back. And that's the way it happens. And and I've discovered that 99% of the time when we handle things that way, that the spirit of rebellion can lead to a spirit of repentance before the pastor, the rest of the church, or anybody else even knows what's going on. But often we wait, and we wait. See, there's a warning here not to rush to judgment. Not to rush to the pastor, not to rush before the church and say, well, do you know what so-and-so's doing? Do you know what they're involved in? What makes you look bad? makes the church look bad? No, you go, and, and you begin to start that process on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God has said. Church discipline, and let's be real clear on this, church discipline is not about witch hunts. It's not about power plays to where we say, I don't like them, I don't like their behavior, and they're giving us a bad name, and I'm just going to gossip about it, I'm going to slander them. That's not how we handle it. We in love, graciously. As a matter of fact, another passage that deals with church discipline, along with 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew chapter 18, is Galatians chapter 6. Those are three passages that we need to, to, to surround every act of church discipline. And Galatians chapter 6 tells us, you who are spiritual, when they're caught in a sin, when they're overtaken in a sin, and the language there has to do with if, even though they were rebellious, there's a trap and they might even want to be freed from that trap. 
but it's got a stronghold in their life. And so it says, you who are spiritual, that reminds us of Matthew chapter 7, which tells us that we're to take the beam out of our own eye before we try to remove the speck from their eye. But we don't leave the speck in their eye. We, we have to remove it. So he says, you are spiritual. Go and you restore them gently. And he's talking about there not only with how you handle the conversation with them, but how you handle your own life. He says, you know, with humility, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. If you go with pride and arrogance. See, listen, pride and arrogance can lead us in a couple of different directions here. Pride and arrogance could say, well, God really doesn't care, and this ain't a big deal to God, and we don't have to confront that. We don't have to worry about it. It'll be okay. That's prideful, but it's also prideful for us to say, well, because I have it all together, I'm going to go let them know that they're making me look bad. See, that's pride, too. He says, so with, with humility, consider yourself. I think there should always be an attitude in church discipline when we approach men, when we approach another brother who's overtaken in a sin, that we at the same time are saying, hey, but for the grace of God, I could be in the same place you are in. And so we do it on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our example. None of us are perfect. The key there is humility, yet it must take place. But those passages remind us, and Matthew chapter 18 reminds us, that eventually there may be a, a situation where someone ultimately says, I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God says. I don't care what the church says. I'm going to live this way. Sometimes they exercise the church discipline themselves, and they say, I'm just going to make it easy for you and remove myself from the church. But if not, we have instructions here in verse 5. This is serious business because he says, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, so, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It could be that the person's lost and they need to come to faith in Christ, or it could be that we just need to turn this person over to Satan, considering what that means, so that it really gets their attention over to Satan. Many people say that is a Paulineism. That's a, a statement that was uh, only familiar in the writings of Paul, and that Paul was trying to say, hey, listen, don't give this person a sense of entitlement. Don't protect them anymore. Don't look out for them. Don't even pray for God's grace on their life at this time. But let them go through all hell if necessary so that God may get their attention, that they might hit rock bottom, that they might lose everything and realize what they've lost. It is allowing the enemy at them. You know, we already know, according to 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, does what? He walks about like a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. Now, think about this. If God allowed the devil at Job, who was a righteous man and walked with God because he wanted to do something in Job's life to demonstrate his own power. If Jesus told Peter, hey, Satan has come, and he's asked me, for permission to sift you like grain, I'm going to let him do it. So, so if God the Father was, allowed to, uh, was willing to allow Satan at Job, and the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to allow the devil at Peter to accomplish his purposes, how much more, when we're living in defiance and in rebellion against God, will God say, I'm just going to let the devil at you? God has all power. God is omnipotent. The devil doesn't have all power. The devil is wiped out by the blood of the cross. 
He's destroyed by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Lucifer and Jesus, according to one religion, they're not spirit brothers kind of evenly fighting. Jesus has all power and authority over the enemy. But God may choose to just turn the devil loose on you from time to time. The church is to cooperate with that process. So he says, turn them over to Satan. Don't enable that behavior. Stop protecting it. Don't provide for them in seasons like that. Imagine that you were to um, be the biggest kid in your school. You might have been the biggest kid in your school. I don't know. Imagine you were the one who protected a kid from the school bully. Imagine you're that guy. I mean, there's the school bully who's just kind of beating up everybody, and the only thing is the bully can't handle you. So, so you're the strongest kid in the school, and, and you take this kid who's been beaten up by the school bully, and, and you say, that's enough. You push the bully away. You take the kid, and you begin to protect the kid, and you say, just hang with me. You hang with me, and I've got him. I'll take care of that bully. You become my friend. And that, that kid begins to hang with you, and he's your friend, and, and all of a sudden he begins to disrespect you. All of a sudden he begins to slander you. He takes you for granted. Well, I can say anything I want to say to anybody. I can do whatever I want to do because he's going to take up for me. Wouldn't you get to a point where you would say, that's it. That's enough. You're taking me for granted. You're slandering my name. Next time he comes after you, I'm going, I'm going to let him have you. I'm going to let him wear you out. Let's see if that gets your attention. I believe that God, in his sovereign plan for us, is willing to let the devil at us to get our attention. We can no longer define our behavior as that which would be associated with Christ. Then he turns him loose. This was not just a struggle here with lust. Not just a believer that's battling that sin that which easily entangles. This was... The church and this individual saying, we are going to do what we want to do, and we doubt that you will do anything about it. That's the challenge that we face in this world today. Don't enable that friend. Don't tolerate that behavior in your home. Don't be like an Eli. Remember Eli, the priest who led his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, just kind of do what they wanted to do and be involved in all kinds of immorality. It led to the destruction of their lives and their family, ultimately the death of Eli. Parents tolerate this so long, even in their own homes, it leads the parents to an early grave sometimes. Don't overlook the perversions of your friends and family and sons and daughters. Begin this process Graciously, lovingly, but begin it. Number two, you see the refusal of the the purification of Christ. It's another consequence, and and we participate that even in how we handle, I think, the Lord's table. It says your boasting's not good, verse 6. You know, the little yeast permeates the whole batch. Clean out the old yeast that you may be a a new batch, since you are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover has been sacrificed, therefore let us observe the feast. Not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and envy, but with unleavened bread and, and sincerity of truth. See, immediately after the Passover feast, 
there had been the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so th- this was a, talking about a, a season. The, fe- the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a season of, of where people began to deal with the impurities in our lives. And so Paul uses that an analogy of how the church should be handling this situation. It also became a visual reminder. Later when we get in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we will see about the, the context to which the, the Lord's Supper was set in in the church uh, with the, uh, what we might call the contemporary at that time version of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but they would have their agape feasts as well. And, and it was all a reminder of the sanctification work that we were talking about as we began this series, the, the cleansing work that Christ is doing in us, and it's a process. When somebody is living in willful and sinful disobedience and in their pride and arrogance saying, I don't need God, then they back away and they disassociate themselves from the process by which God is doing a gracious and and wonderful and remarkable cleansing work in their life, changing them. In other words, there's kind of a snowball effect. Anybody get to build a snowman? I don't guess we had enough snow for that. I saw some some little ones here and there, but it kind of had a snowball effect. You know, as you, you begin to roll a snowball... And it gets bigger and bigger. And every time around, it's picking up more snow, right? The arrogance in, in the rebellion has a growing effect. And, and so we're refusing the purification of Christ. We begin to rationalize. We begin to skip church. We begin to not feel like reading our Bible anymore. We begin to avoid the people of God and not want to be around them. And we want to avoid every reminder of what we were meant to be in Christ. And so it begins to have this cumulative snowball effect picking up more of the trash from the world. And he says the leaven of the world, the leaven that, that they were trying to avoid during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, represented the sin that just grabs onto us in this world. He says that's never going to satisfy. Specifically, here he's dealing with sexual sin, even though I believe that this, the prideful, arrogant, intentional disobedience and rebellion can apply to a lot of sins. He's going to tell us in chapter 6, we'll see next week, why sexual sin was even a bigger deal than all of the rest. But the hardest part is that the the prideful rebellion leaves people, leaves people, and it's the third and final point this morning, robbed of the privileges of the church. Absolutely robbed of the privilege of the church. Now, it looks like, as you read this text, that it's the church that's going to do the robbing. Well, you're robbing me from privileges of the church. But if you go back and you look at the behavior that it started with, the pride and the arrogance that the church had experienced, as well as the scandalous tolerance of this despicable sin that gave the church the reputation that they would never want, you realize they were robbing themselves, robbed of the privileges. What do we mean? He says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexual the immoral people. Associate means continually keeping company with them. They're not the people you hang out with all the time. By no means referring to this world's immoral people or to the greedy and the swindlers or to idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, see here's, here's the other sins, idolater or reveler or drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. And based on the context and the, 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 the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it could have been referring to they're not to partake part in the Agape Feast or the Lord's Supper, we might say today. They're not to take part in that. 
That's why the Bible tells us to examine ourselves here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So he says, don't associate. Don't even eat. And, and he's not talking, he says here, about the general population. He's not, not talking about isolate yourself from the world because if you go to work, if you go to school, there's going to be people involved in all kinds of indiscretions and immorality and, and intolerable sins that you would say, man, that is just sick. And so I'm just going to hide like a hermit. No, we're told in John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying for us, that we are not of this world, but we are in it. And as Christians in the world, we're to be salt and light. Here, it's, it's an issue of church discipline. See, see, sometimes we get all upset at unbelievers for acting like unbelievers, and Paul is saying that's not the problem. The problem is when people name the name of Jesus Christ, and they call themselves a brother or sister, and they're involved in something that is more despicable than even that person who don't claim Christ, and you're not saying anything, you're not doing anything about it. Scandalous tolerance. Pointed out later in, in a discussion of gifts, as we'll get to, later in this series, that there are so many opportunities to be a vital part of the body of Christ. So many responsibilities. We're all getting gifts. We're, we're to plug those in. We're to serve and, and use those gifts. And, and Paul is saying it's not for those who are living in willful disobedience. Do you not judge those who are inside? Verse 12, God judges the outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. What, what is he saying? This is not after you've gone to confront and they have had a spirit of remorse and regret and sought forgiveness and asked the church, man, help me to overcome this problem. We're not talking about that. We're talking about somebody who says, I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the Lord Jesus Christ says. I don't care what the church says. I'm going to do things my way. So the goal is restoration. The scandal here was their high tolerance of this, even in this world. We like to pick on, those of us who are big football fans, especially Georgia fans, we, we especially like to pick on the SEC West from time to time, right? We're like, man, if somebody gets kicked off of a team in the East, somebody from the West will pick them up. I think they just passed a rule to change a little bit of that, but we're like, man, somebody gets disciplined. I, I always looked at it. It's kind of like that parent, that one parent disciplines I, I don't think they would mind me saying that, but when my dad had to discipline us, he would sometimes have to look at my mom and say, don't pet them now. Because that removes the consequence of the discipline, right? And, and so the church sometimes needs to step back, let God do his disciplinary work, and let them suffer the consequences for that, and then come in with grace when repentance is demonstrated. But sometimes, sometimes we make fun of football programs in a secular world for not being disciplinarians, when far more actions are tolerated in the church of the living Christ than would ever be allowed to be tolerated by any football coach in America. And so we let it, well, we can go overlook that. The goal is restoration again. In the book End Zone, The Rise, Fall, and Return of Michigan Football, Coach uh, Schimbeckler in the early 70s kicked a fellow off the team by the name of David Brandon, who had been with them for about three years, he was a backup quarterback. He had a prideful attitude. He had a horrible work ethic. He is not the, restart, not the starter and, and had had an attitude one particular day. And, and, um, and Coach Schimbeckler just basically said, go to your locker room, get your stuff, and go home. 
So he went, he cleaned out his locker, and he went home. Later, David Brandon would say, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. Best thing that ever happened to me. Coach kicked me off the team, told me to clean out my locker and go home. You say, why? Well, changed his attitude. Changed his work ethic. He went on to graduate from Michigan, and he became eventually the CEO of Domino's. Led it through its greatest years of growth. Ended up coming back as athletic director at Michigan until there was a little political coup more recently. He was a key influencer in the Republican Party in the state of Michigan. And now that he's no longer the athletic director there, he's got the small little task of being the CEO of Toys R Us. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. Maybe he is. I haven't read all of his story. But I know this. He said the best thing that ever happened for him was to be disciplined by a coach and kicked off a team. Changed his life. See, the goal is restoration. Church discipline says people have to see what they're missing. Grace is great, but healing takes time. It's not just the changes of behavior that it's to lead to. So that's outward confirmation. It's to lead to changes of the heart. And so we're called as a church to cooperate, and I still believe to this day that when we follow the biblical account, I've seen it time and time and time again. We've been involved in, in many situations of beginning the process of church discipline that you will never know about and you have no need to know about because God began his restoring work in that process. But when we let it go, in our own lives, the lives of the people that we love, it's not really an act of love. It's not really an act of grace. Because God shows us tough love. There may be somebody that you're praying for right now. It may be a best friend. It may be a parent. It may be a child. It may be a member of this church or just a, a member of the kingdom of God in another church somewhere. And as you begin to pray for them, begin to pray with tough love and say, Father, I'm not going to enable this behavior. Father, as hard as it will hurt me and as lacking in compassion as I might be, I'm not going to enable this behavior. I'm not going to provide for it. I'm going to let them suffer the consequences. You say, well, what if it kills them? <laughs> what if it takes their life? Listen, what did he say here? What if... Do you want their spirit to perish more than you want their body to perish? Let them experience the tough love of God. Be there to pick them up when they repent. Be there to pick them up when they're broken. And embrace them just like when the prodigal son came home. Embrace them as the father embraced his son and throw a party, throw a celebration at that moment. But church discipline is tough love. You're praying for somebody today. Pray the hard prayers. You say, oh, I've done that before. Listen, I've heard this before. I've prayed that hard prayer before, and when I prayed that hard prayer, spiritual warfare began, and it was so difficult. And I promise you, it will begin. But we've got to be willing to grow in our faith and fight on our knees. And sometimes 
that means backing away, letting people suffer the consequences of their action, and let God get their attention. It's a hard thing to say, tough thing to say, but come back, say it with all the love and the grace and humility you can. Would you bow your heads with me?